Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Courtney Wilburn, who is a speaker, writer, and currently a senior engineering manager at Elastic. Courtney joins us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. Courtney Wilburn, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Oh, wow. I have to say the, the top thing for me is, is a good community around it. You know, folks who, who seem to are, are enthusiastic about what the thing does. Uh, they want that they realize how essential it is to being in the wild and they want it to, to, they want it to stay there. So that's definitely one of the things like a, the, a, you know, people who are, you know, enthusiastic about whatever it does. And then, yeah, just the, the community, like people who are willing to work toward that goal, whatever those goals are, you know, they have something in mind um, and then they're, they're focused on accomplishing those goals. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about community and I'm like my brain immediately wants to think about like open source context. But do you feel like that's the same within like a private organization and their own software that they're working on maintaining? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, with with internal software, if it's something that you're building that is just, you know, if it's a product being made by a company, I think there still has to be a level of interest and passion and an understanding about it, how essential it is to either the end users, if you're not the end users, if, if you are one of the users of the, of, of the software that you're maintaining, that you, that you have a, a desire to see it, you know, be its best version of itself, I guess, or, or continue to perform well as, as its demands or use cases change. I think that, I think that that, that applies whether or not you're in, you're talking about open source software or, you know, uh, enterprise software. Right. I, that's, yeah, it's interesting. I I don't think I'd heard anyone kind of quite describe like, and I don't know how large of teams you might work on, but I never really thought about like the software team or the people that are helping, wanting to see it succeed and, and prosper and persist or last for a long time. Um, refer to that as a community. I, I like that. I like that framing. It's interesting. So within that, what are some characteristics of like what, when there is a community that cares about a piece of software? whether it's internal or, or public or open source or what have you, but what are some of the, like the sort of characteristics would you likely see in those pieces of software or infrastructure code? Yeah. I mean, I mean, excellent documentation is a part of it. I mean, I think that's the only, uh, like a lot of the stuff that gets passed down through lore, if you're, if you're not necessarily relying on any sort of physical documentation, a lot of that changes over time and some of it may not, hold true from the from a, a project's inception to where it currently is. And so, you know, documenting either the changes it's undergone or, or you know, openly documenting the evolution of that and leaving its entire history for for scrutiny, for examination is part of it, or even just saying this is where it is right now and this is how you use it as it as it lives right now is important. And I think that if something is well documented and people understand what their relationship is to it, you know, whether it's for like a, you know, simple user's documentation or a developer's documentation against that, 
it's going to continue to live in some in some way, shape, or form, right? Even if even if it ends up getting sort of broadly refactored, if you kind of understand understand how why something came to pass and what what problems it's attempting to solve, then then you know its DNA will will stick around in some way, shape, or form, right? Like it's it's going to stay it's going to stay around. Like people will someone will be beholden to that mission more than likely. When when folks are joining an organization where they've had software that's been around for a while, do you feel like you've had a good opportunity as you join organizations to really get to spend a lot of time thinking about how or learning about how things came to be the way they are or trying to, or do you feel like you spend more of your time understanding where things are today so you can think about like what's next with it? Um, I try to, I try to spend like about 50, 50 between those two things. Like I, I really, I, I'm one of those folks. I, I really feel like the, the uh, having a deep contextual you know, basis or a framework to, to sort of analyze what's going on will like helps me a great deal. You know, that may, that may not be the case for everyone else. I think, you know, personally, I kind of want to get as much context, as much, you know, as much background knowledge. I kind of want to, you know, understand like, are they, are they still solving for this thing? Were they always solving for this thing when they initially built it? Um, or did they see like, you know, actually, you know, once we were solving for this, you know, I, I, I think about, you know, Slack's origins as like a, a you know, being related to gaming and it, and it ended up solving for a completely other use case. You know, what, is that the case for the thing that, that you're working on? Was it an attempt to solve this problem when it actually ended up solving some other problem and doing that well? So how do we approach, you know, how do we, in, in light of that, how do we continue to to add add features or build on or or adjust to the evolution of the the piece of software itself, you know, I think that that is as important. Or it helps you figure out if there's another tool entirely that can, you know, that that you might need to build to to try to solve for that use case. Or or should you just lean into solving? You've solved this problem really well, even though you didn't intend to. Should we? Let's just keep walking that path, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you use the the metaphor of technical debt very often in your day-to-day work? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. And what is your current take on it or what, how, how do you describe it to other people on your teams? So, you know, I think it really depends on the, the, the context in which it's brought up, but you know, like I, I think that like technical debt is at least for me, when I talk about it is a result of shifting priorities, you know, in, in some way or another, like, either formally or informally a group of people have decided to take their you know the the direction of what they're building somewhere there are there are some problems but for whatever reason this group of people have chosen not to you know either either formally or informally to to address them and that to me is what technical debt is we've we've chosen not to address these problems so that we may address these other problems. And then, you know, when it comes to prioritization of those things, do we see an emergent need to address those problems? Or do we say, we have decided not to address these specific problems because we don't see, you know, either, either the need has been obviated by another, another tool, or is it something that we, we need to, we need to prior, reprioritize and start addressing because, you know, we're hitting on a, a, either a key reason or something that's, that's holding, holding back 
the progression of this, the, the, the a positive sort of evolution of this particular piece of software. You know, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, you know, things will get prioritized or maybe they decide that it's not going to happen maybe right now or not. Do you have any patterns that you found? Is this like, are these types of conversations that happen more real time with, within it, your teams to kind of figure things out? Or are these things you actually have like a backlog of like technical debt and you're like, we made a decision on this so far. So there's like, it's documented somewhere why we're not doing this just yet, or maybe never. Cause sometimes I always wonder when people join teams and they encounter these things and they're like, Oh, what's this? And then someone's like, Oh, we decided not to do that or not. How does this, how does this knowledge kind of persist or these decisions or when do you revisit them? I try to make sure it's documented as much as possible, you know, at least for, for folks that are on my teams, you know, I want to make sure that we're, we're aware of like, regardless of the size of the sticking point, if it's a sticking point, I want to make sure that people are aware that, you know, either, either, we're aware of it, right? If it's something new um, that we're we're encountering, I think it's it's worth noting as well. But like, if it's if it's something that folks are aware of, it's if if it's a known issue that people are encountering, you know, I want to make sure that we've come to a decision. You know, I I try to keep that in our conscious focus as much as possible that we have decided this is not a higher prior this is not a high enough priority for us to to address here is a common workaround that we found and that is documented as well, right? Like this is, this is a workaround for, for this problem. And then even like a, a potential expiration date, you know, I think is, is, a, is another thing that we, you know, I don't think we do as great of a job, you know, at least in my, my own personal history of saying like this has a specific expiration date, but like saying that like, you know, in whatever period of time or once this other thing, this other factor uh, becomes more of an issue, uh, we will need to address this. The, the priority of this may change. It may, it may move forward. We may need to address it, but this is why we've done this now. This is why we've decided not to address this now. We're opening to re-examining that in a very specific period of time to make sure that that is still the case. I like that, uh, that approach or thinking about expiration dates and trying to honor those, I guess, is always going to be a little bit of a difficult thing because, you know, like things, we never know what the future is going to look like in terms of where you're at and everything. I'm curious if you've, as you reflect on your understanding of technical debt over the years, has that evolved a little bit? Do you feel like there's a period in your career where you might have, in retrospect, might have been using technical debt as, as a communication tool for maybe something that you actually wouldn't agree with yourself now that is technical debt? I don't know. I guess, I think I... You know, I, I think I've definitely been in places in the past where technical debt is just it's just assumed that like there's no there's not necessarily an expiration date. We can just toss this over the fence for a while or compartmentalize sort of how we're building or, you know, compartmentalize our scope for like how we're building our thing and pretend like these things of, of technical debt don't ex- don't exist. And I feel like to me, that's kind of like an untended garden right at some point it's going to be overgrown with weeds or poison ivy or whatever so it makes sense to address it I, th- I feel like my approach to technical debt I think the the only thing that has changed in terms of my approach to technical debt um, I have more of a sense of urgency to attempt to pay down some of those things because I can see I've seen what has happened when there's a failure to at least examine how how deep in technical debt a particular project is 
um, and that and what that can do to the overall health of you know even just the people involved in the project. You know, I think I think sometimes if someone hops into even let's say an open source project and they're very much enthusiastic about the technology itself, and then they they look over in GitHub and it's got ten thousand open issues, some of which have been open for a number of years. You know, I think sometimes the enthusiasm for making contributions to that or even noting that there may be issues with that software will probably wane, right? They're like, well, this is just going on, this is going on top of a, a, a pretty substantial heap of things and, and who's to say, it looks like po- there's a possibility it's been addressed, someone brought it up three years ago and it still hasn't been addressed, et cetera. And I think that like, you know, I, I, I care a lot more now as, I, as I've progressed about like, some of the people involved in, in, in maintaining the software and what that must be like and like how much of how much it can take away from you know the, the software itself improving. If there are core issues that people continue to note that haven't been addressed, right? Even the people using it are aware of that and they don't necessarily feel empowered to to address these issues in a timely fashion, then that's gonna uh, eventually you're gonna head down a path of of the software itself not necessarily meeting its its needs and meeting anyone's needs and, and, and perhaps hastening the deprecation of the software. I can appreciate that. And I'm also thinking about my own open source projects or one in particular that uh, has a lot of consistently has like, like 500 plus pull requests. And even though we're like tackling them, it's just like, I'm always like, how does this feel like for someone new to the project? Uh, that wants to contribute, they're like, oh my gosh, like, are they ever going to get, we do get to pull requests. It's just that we can't keep up with, you know, consistently getting like several a day, you know? So it's like a capacity thing too, but it's, it's an interesting, but it, yeah, it's like a form of, uh, we have some process debt or something that we're working through. Yeah. I mean, process debt is like so hard. You know what I mean? I feel like process debt is one of those things. It's just like, you know, trying to figure out that sweet spot of like how you leaving flexibility for people to like, start working on bits of the project that are maybe less, you know, directly address, feel less transactional when it comes to sort of getting the pull request and merging the pull request, making sure it makes sense, even addressing the pull request in whatever way it needs to be addressed. And then even like putting out a, another release if, if it, if it requires it, like, I think balancing like the way, how often people are working with that versus like, you know, working on building out new features is like, that can be a really tough balance to strike. And, and I think that like people who are contributing these to these projects sometimes don't think about the fact that like you can contribute to this 24 seven. A lot of the people who are maintaining these projects have a probably a limited amount of time and bandwidth through which they can like actually deal with, you know, sort of the onslaught of, you know, in number of pull requests coming in globally, right. On a daily basis and how, how difficult that is. I, I, I think I, as I've gotten older too, that's one of the, and, and progressed through, I started thinking about, you know, that a little bit more like the, the human side, like, is this necessary for me to put a pull request in for this? Like, you know, do I need to be persistent in, in, in sort of dealing with this? Like, a, like this is, this is something that's been a been around for a while. B is incredibly stable. You know, C has a very broad, uh, you know, user base. Is, is this something like, is this something that I can take care of personally rather than like, you know? I think of, uh, you know, like in my example or my scenario where I always like remind myself that it's open source. So 
people are making customizations that are or do, making features or enhancements that are they can benefit immediately from so they can use their their version of it their fork of the project it just may not be upstream for a while so that other people can take advantage of it and if anyone was super curious if they knew how to do it they can always pull in those requests into their version and take you know so that's one of the nice things about the open source is that i give myself that a little bit of uh be a little okay with myself with not keeping up on everything because like I don't want to necessarily run the project faster. I don't want to do. I don't want to have higher output. It's like that was never the goal for the thing. So it's just like a, anyhow. It's just like a some, something that I navigate. I want to switch gears a little bit and something. I'll talk a little bit about uh, recruitment if possible. So, in I know that you you work in an environment that's maybe a bit more on the um, infrastructure side of things than I am. I'm you know and I'm curious. Well, at least I saw this tweet recently and someone was talking about how it can be difficult for organizations to bring in junior level infrastructure engineers. And do you feel like that's that resonates with you? Are you able to recruit junior level people? Um, it does resonate. It's hard because you you're having to balance the demand between like, you know, much like an, an open source project. You know, I don't I don't see this as, as like very, very different in, in my view, balancing the needs of like some very high priority things that need to get addressed, you know, some, some mission critical, if you will, problems that need addressing versus, you know, the amount that you need to pour into someone who is just starting um, to give them a solid foundation. Like I, I certainly, you know, I take hiring and recruiting, recruiting very seriously and I would, I'm hiring someone who is very junior. I'm looking for for someone who, you know, not just someone who I I think you know I I feel like there's a reciprocal relationship there. There's you know I want to be able to learn from them. Like you know they're they're newer to the industry. Their perspective is unique. You know all of these sorts of things. But I also want to make sure that they're in a they have an opportunity to grow. If you can't provide that, you know, I, I think, too, if you're it's good to be honest as an organization that if you can't provide that, then you then it makes sense to not hire folks who are who would need that. Right. Who would need this level of mentoring, who would need this level of room to grow in a specific way versus sort of, you know, having sort of very senior hired guns that can come in and speak to and address these very bespoke uh, issues. But you know you want to you want to make sure that you're you're hiring for someone who could potentially be around for a long time, right? And the impressions that they get from working with you or working with more senior folks are gonna sort of color their impression of of the the industry, their entire career, even or or like you know turn them on or off to that specific subdiscipline. So you have to, you know, I think it is it is essential if you're expecting. Um, mentorship and professional development from your senior engineers. I personally feel like you can't do that without having more junior engineers there. They've got to be able to share knowledge uh, and even gain other knowledge from someone from somewhere. That can't happen in a vacuum. And I feel like junior having junior engineers and having people to having a, a relationship where where they can grow. And the other people can continue to grow in different ways from from having that relationship is is essential to, I think, just general professional development and health of the like the human beings that are sort of tasked with building this thing. Yeah, that's it's 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 interesting. The, uh, you know, like we get contacted by companies that are looking for like to, I work in the consulting side of things. So people will 
come to us and be like, hey, we need some senior people. They're never asking, hey, can we bar- can we rent, you know, rent some junior developers to work on our projects? Like, they're like, oh, we can easily find junior people, but we just don't have the infrastructure in place to support them. And on the infrastructure side, even I think it's what's interesting about that to me. It's like it feels like you need to build up a lot of knowledge to be able to like to be able to do a lot of those types of tasks that might be getting, you know, shared amongst the team or what have you, or maybe the team is already feeling like they've got more than enough things to already be responsible for to let alone have to also potentially be responsible for providing, you know, carving out time to be a mentor, to help people, you know, navigate some of those things and to, to build those people up. So I guess my, my curiosity about that is like, what could, and I feel like this was always a thing that my team was always concerned about for for a long time. Like, like how could we bring in junior people? Or like, or even have interns come in? We're like, I don't like there are senior people. Like, I don't have time. I got too many things already on my plate. You want me to also be responsible for someone? For us, we eventually were like, all right, well, let's bring in inter- We'll try some interns. We'll do this for like two months. That's there's a time box. We're gonna do this. They'll go away, and you know we're not responsible for hiring them. So we set the expectations. We give them two months. Let's learn from it. Let's try. So I went up started to do that on a regular basis to help build up a little bit of mentorship skill sets within the team. Just be like, okay, you know we could do that for you know limited amount of time. I don't have to be responsible for them myself for two months. We can pass share the load across multiple people. I'm not trying to say this is what you should do or anything, but or other people, but it was like a way for us to start getting more comfortable as an organization with having people come in is by time boxing it and knowing that there was this wasn't going to be someone we needed to be responsible for the next several years. But now we're bringing junior people because we already know that. And the junior people that we bring in can also be mentors to the interns that we bring in. So we're always like regularly bringing interns in like every quarter. We have a couple of junior people that are able to share their knowledge. And the junior people are working with senior people. Interns work with senior people. And, and we have people that are now seniors that are once upon a time a junior person, you know. And so it's like, so I, I guess within organizations, how do you, where do these senior people come from? How do they even get their foot in the door? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard. I mean, I think with with junior with with senior people, it's like, you know, they've they've been junior at some point in their lives, right? Like, you know, everyone everyone has been a even even if you have an abundance of skill, you come in with an abundance of skill, there's something that you're green about, right? Like you can be the the most the most excellent programmer in a specific language, but if you haven't coded for a specific you know, use case or whatever, or a specific type of a specific subset of, of engineering or specific subset of programming, you know, you're junior there, right? You're, you're, and I think, I think one thing that I try to to do, at least for the senior engineers that I'm hiring is that I, I, I'm very clear about baking in mentorship as a responsibility early on. Like that is an expectation. If you're a senior engineer on this, on a team that I'm hiring for, you will be expected to mentor in some capacity as a as a part of your professional growth. It is incumbent upon you to to engage in this, like have a a, a mentorship relationship with with someone, and even being mentored by someone is it, it, essential because there you know there are different ways in which you can kind of walk this path. When it comes to to junior folks, you know I think that just that level of curiosity, especially when they're coming into sort of into infrastructure engineering, if they've just generally been an engineer, like, I think that's good enough, right, for, for me. As long as they're curious enough about to, to stay open-minded um, and learn a new approach or a new side of the world, uh, so to speak, that's sufficient. 
But I think just making sure that that is baked in the process early on, right? For a junior, like expect that you will have someone who is shepherding you through, you know, on this journey. And then for a senior engineer, expect to shepherd someone through this journey. That's kind of the approach that I've taken. It's worked pretty well so far. And I think folks have learned a lot from each other and it's been good. I think it's, I think the beautiful thing that, that I've seen is, you know, watching people become better at teaching by being a mentor, right? Like losing that, that headcanon, um, turning it into a, turning it into actual documentation or code or into a formal, formal process. Um, it has been a really beautiful thing to see. We'll be back with our interview with Courtney in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Courtney Wilburn. Do you provide any advice or, or have you felt like you've needed to provide some advice to people where you, on how to give and or receive feedback amongst like on a technical level and whether that be through pull request feedback or just communication between team members? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I feel like it's, you know, being a pretty good communicator is an essential part of your uh, growth and development. I think a lot of the times, like, you know, for a long time where there was just a, a sort of tolerance of, well, you know, high technical skill, poor communication in order to move a particular project forward. But I think as bits of software mature and as the, you know, divisions of, of labor, so to speak, that pour into particular project or sets of projects, in order for all of the moving parts to work well together um, and even for the people to work well together, communication is key. And sometimes it, it's, you know, been very direct coaching, right? Very, very direct coaching, uh, telling people like, you know, looking through like you gave this feedback, you know, like here are some general pointers about how to give feedback, you know, and when it when it comes to, you know, receiving feedback, like, you know, let's all let's let's have some rules of engagement on on how we engage with you know with each other and then like you can examine whether or not you need to you know as you grow a comfort in communicating with people you can you can sort of figure out what what works best to like more strictly enforce or more loosely enforce in terms of some of those rules i think part of that is like you have to model that as well and so as a manager I'm modeling some of that. Like one of the things that, that that I've done that has been really helpful for me is, you know, initially when I'm, if I have taken on a new team is like asking people about ways in which they've received feedback that have been helpful and not helpful to them. And then, you know, figuring out the best ways that they receive information. You know, what's the way that they receive information that's going to resonate the most? If that's around a technical issue, if that's around a performance issue even, you know, what are the ways in which the, the feedback resonates best with you? And, the, and that people are made, a, that their, their teammates are made aware of that, that like, here's the, here are the best ways for me to receive feedback, to talk about the, the, the code in this way, to talk about, you know, things and in, in, to, to approach it saying, saying these things or to, uh, you know, to say like, I, I, I'm a more visual person, so I would prefer someone to demonstrate it or, or I want to, 
I want to read through this thing or like I prefer code comments or whatever it is. Um, you know, we try to make sure that folks, you know, different styles of learning are at least accommodated to the best of our people's abilities so that the, the people can truly internalize the feedback that they're receiving and that they can understand that if they're giving feedback, perhaps if they, uh, you know, approach it in a different way, it's going to resonate with that person more. They'll, they'll be able to take it more, uh, to, to understand it more and like incorporate it more into like sort of future, future actions. So one of the things I was really looking forward to digging into you with you is re- related to refactoring. You'd mentioned that earlier in terms of thinking about technical debt type things as well. And, and when you get a chance, to, your team is going to work on some refactoring. And so firstly, when it comes to, say, refactoring, like, like a software applications code base versus, say, refactoring the infrastructure that maybe the code will exist within, do you see any major differences in team and how teams might approach those two paths? I've worked on both sides of the fence. You know, I've worked in both, you know, software and like just building pieces of software, building the infrastructure that sits alongside it. And I think the most enlightening thing for me is just it was was realizing like the processes are are the same. And essentially, especially when you're sort of, you know, getting to the, the cloud level, you know, beyond the sort of systems design and all these other sorts of pieces, like you have to when approaching a refactor is similar, I think the implementation of the refactor and the implications of a refactor are slightly different, but how you're putting these changes in place are essentially the same. You have to have, you have to have a a specific amount of buy-in, so to speak, like are the reasons why we're doing this? Is it necessary? Is it mission critical? Will it, will it improve things in such a way that like, it's going to end up sort of saving us, you know, time, effort, whatever, you know, user problems in the future, what, whatever it is. You have to go into that with the same sort of thought about like, what are we doing? What are the reasons why we're doing this? What are the, the our motivations behind this? And they have to typically, you know, they're, they're usually kind of the same, right? We, we need to make these specific improvements in order to improve performance or delivery or whatever that is. I think when it comes to the implementation of a refactor, like how you're going to, how, you know, I think obviously when it comes to infrastructure, you know, the, the, it's one of those like one or zero, right? Like if you, if it, if it falls out, if the whole thing falls over and nothing that about this application is like, you know, like it, it, it falls over after you like poorly implement a, a refactor, then that's a huge problem. So you have to sort of enter, you know, you have to think about whether or not this is something that can be done, you know, a lights on, lights off sort of situation, a, a, a slow transition into to something, a slow migration. Will, will users notice all these sorts of things, those, a lot of those concerns are, are the same, you know, and, and I think sometimes people think about the implications of it being a little bit different because the infrastructure is one of those, like, you know, the, like the foundation of a house, right? Like, or at least people think of it that way. And that like, you know, if you're messing up a, a an infrastructure change, then it's like, like nothing work works out. But like, to me, the, it's, it's very, very similar. Like, obviously, like if you can have, you can have fancy, snappy, beautiful infrastructure all day but if the app's no good you know or or like it's it's in need of a lot of uh, a lot of upkeep or a large monumental like framework shift or update then like it's it's just as problematic as the infrastructure not working if not worse right like you know i think people just think about like people think about infrastructure the way they do like a utility essentially right like if it's you'll know when it's not working right you know when your lights are not working your water's not running etc but but yeah, you also know when like the application's not performing uh, in the, in the manner in which you you 
expect it to. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that myself and, and thinking of it like that and being like, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this a little bit, cause it was just like thinking, like, I always feel like they're like a little bit more risk adverse of being like, okay, well, when we do these, make these infrastructure changes, like, how are we going to test these things out? Make sure we feel really comfortable before we start rolling it out or what have you. And, um, sometimes it's kind of feel like, Oh, did, are there things that, I mean, let's make an assumption. I'm making an assumption. Do you do anything like retrospectives after these rollouts and things like that? And are there common things that tend to pop up that you've since included in, say, a checklist of things that your team tries to think about and answer ahead of time to make sure that, like, well, it's, we don't want that to happen again? Right. I think sometimes, like, I think the, the, the major thing that I think about, too, is sometimes scale. Like, I think with infrastructure changes, like, you know, at least now with 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 cloud computing, it's a little it's a little bit easier to attempt to like to approximate what how something happens at scale, right? Like how something will perform at scale when it comes to like a like a, a particular infrastructure change. But I do think sometimes that can bite you in the in the butt when you're like testing. You're like, well, this worked, and it was like you know performant in this way, and you were not necessarily thinking about you know what real time common user interactions with with like. You know, or like what the implicate what downstream effects user interactions have on a particular set of, of infrastructure and how infrastructure change could positively or negatively impact the performance of the application sitting on top of it. Like I think that like that's one of the things that like I've I've definitely learned like, you know, we should actually like, you know, instead of, you know, from from like a pure sort of synthetics testing like of like performance of a of a stack, right? Uh, on top of a on top of a you know infrastructure let's try to have more some of our test cases for this when we're rolling out a big change let's do something that very very much more closely emulates how people are using this in the wild and what that looks like in its infrastructure and test against those metrics right to make sure that we're that it's going to be successful or we're going to see improvements in some of these particular things that we're looking for that's true. I know that um, I'm just quickly reminded of a project that we were working on. I think it was maybe late last summer. We were getting ready to move an applica- a web application from between two different like platforms. And when we were, were doing a little bit of uh, testing in the new platform, we're thinking like, oh, we're not going to have to make any major code changes, you know. But it was going to help us set us up so we could do some some upgrades in the application because it was running on some older hardware. I'm like, cool, we'll get them on a new platform. And then we, we hit a problem where like some report building thing was just failing out on this new infrastructure. And we didn't have the time and, and, and the budget at the time with our client to really like dig that much deeper. So the whole thing got put on hold because of like the application couldn't, wouldn't work in the newer technology and the newer platform. And, and we were just like, well, and the one thought was like, well, maybe we just need to throw way more processing power at it and it'll just magically work but that didn't fix it either so we're like okay put this thing on hold we'll come back to it and now i'm like oh my gosh it's been like a year but these types of problems you know so we have that kind of technical debt where we we we're optimistically thinking we're going to get something done and then you know something unexpected pops up and derails things for for far too long yeah i mean it's it's hard too it's like you know i i think one other thing that i've learned that when in thinking about this is like you can't really make as many positive assumptions like when it comes to when it comes to infrastructure like oh it's totally going to work because it's like this thing this thing this thing of course like you know this os is the better it's got you know or, or you know this this the, the way that this thing is built and that we built this thing or we've scripted this thing out it's going to it's totally going to like it's 
it works faster for X other thing, like it's going to work faster, it's going to be better for Y without actually spending some time on, on that. Like, it's not safe to make assumptions in either, in either direction, positive or negative. You have to kind of, you have to, to verify that or you're going to, it's going to kind of bite you sometimes. Sometimes those positive assumptions work out and then you get sort of the, you get the, uh, you know, you get confirmation bias, right? Well, we've done it for these other applications. It's totally going to work for this other thing. And then it, it it ends up not being in the case and you kind of end up having to like pick up the pieces at that point. And in this example, that's exactly what happened. We're like, oh, we're going to move this client to the same infrastructure we're using all of our other clients and everything's going to be great. And it didn't quite work out that way. So yeah, um, yeah. No, <laughs> is I'm curious, are there any data metrics that you find valuable to track in regards to like the health of your infrastructure or software delivery cycle with your team? I mean, at least in terms of the delivery cycle, at least like, you know, if I see a, a you know, like a, any parts of the, the, the code that start to rot, I think that's one of those things where like, do we assess like, are the use cases for this changing? You know, are the use cases for this bit of infrastructure, are the use cases for this particular application or service changing? You know, if something there hasn't been changed so that you know one of that that's one thing if i notice a segment of code is not getting as much attention you know i think it, it's to me it's always worth sort of examining is it is it worth continuing to hang on to this is it still is it useful in the same way are people getting their needs met using something else doing something else you know is a change in workflow enough to deprecate a particular bit of of something that's probably the first thing that it, that comes to mind. Nice. I'm curious also, is there is there an industry trend that you've found yourself feeling skeptical about? Uh, I mean, I would say probably Web3, just generally <laughs> um, um, incredibly skeptical about it. I feel like, I think just generally, you know, just generally in, our, in, the, in the industry, we've developed this approach of like attempting to solve human problems with technology and there are just certain human problems that can't be solved with technology like you know deep inequities in terms of compensation for specific types of labor throwing a technology on top of that doesn't necessarily end up solving the problem i think specifically about nfts right like you know i would love it if we saw an era in which starving artists were not a thing right? That people got fairly compensated for the bits of art they create, the things that they do. Because, you know, art to me is a, is a necessary part of life. It's a necessary way of appreciating the world or thinking or looking at, looking at the world or experiencing the world through, you know, via a different perspective or a different medium. And, you know, people who serve humanity in that way, you know, deserve to have their needs met as much as, you know, their sort of material needs met as much as folks who are doing other things, right? Um, or at least a, a, in my opinion. I don't see NFTs as a way of fully leveling that playing field. And so that is why I'm still sort of deeply skeptical about at least that aspect of it as a way for people to at least have some some more material like compensation for the work that the the type of uh, art they create or the work that they create 
because, you know, it seems like specific bits of work are being made for the medium as opposed to finding ways to compensate people whose art doesn't necessarily conform to that medium, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Thinking about it from that perspective, it's also, I think if anyone asked this question to me, I would say the same thing. And I've only asked a few guests so far this question, and I think every single person has said that. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what that, that says. And I think I, I agree with you on the, I think that sometimes maybe because what is it about the tech industry that makes us feel like we can solve so many problems because we're problem solvers, but and maybe, but it's sometimes it's like, a, there's something about it where it, it feels like it's coming from like a, a little bit of a ignorant, ignorant perspective, I think in some ways. And, or there's another cynical part of me. I'm like, ah, someone's being, someone else is being very opportunistic here and I'm just not going to get pulled into the the mess there, but it's hard not to be curious about it at, at the same time. I'm like, what's going on over here? What are these people talking about? Where? But yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely like looked in just so I could like, I want to have an understanding of it as well. And I'm, I'm like probably, the uh, person in my family is probably the the most involved in in tech like you know the only you know person for you know in both my immediate and extended family who's working in the industry and so you know people come to me with questions about it right like should i buy this nft like that that kind of thing and so i at least wanted to make sure that i could give people an educated you know um sort of opinion about you know any of the uh, emerging technologies but i also feel like it's important to just like you know, just in general, when it comes to like, you know, I think the question is the same, whether we're talking about Web3 or, or, you know, any other, you know, sort of standard or new type of or any sort of technology, what are we solving for? What are the problems that we saw we're solving for it? And is this, am I, am I building something that is, that is actually best equipped to solve this problem? You know, if the answer is no, then maybe we shouldn't do it. Um, and I, I think that like a lot of the times, like, you know, I think the inclination, at least right now, it seems like the the motivation or like people are getting like compensated for doing this, for diving in and just attempting to solve the problem first without examining whether or not they're actually, this is actually the best way for that problem to be solved. You know, I think too about like, you know, uh, autonomous like vehicles. And it's like, like wouldn't pouring more money into mass transit possibly be a better way to offset that? Um, you know, sort of the, the pouring into sort of like uh, autonomous operating vehicles. Like if we poured more into mass transit infrastructure and accessibility, broad accessibility for that, we might make greater sort of societal gains there around that than, than worrying about single uh, vehicles that are, you know, that could, that could operate without a, a driver. So it's true. It's uh, why do we all need to be so, uh, independent and you know in our little family units or whatever they perceive like we have an interesting culture here i'll I'll give it that uh yeah 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 absolutely absolutely all right a couple quick last questions for you courtney uh is is there a non-software non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis or most often absolutely yeah, I would say most often, and especially to folks who are who are like either dabbling in management or they found themselves sort of relating to other like even just sort of higher level sort of like technical leads and people who are spending a higher proportion of their jobs relating more to people than they are spending like touching touching keyboards. Uh, I would say the book um, Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. I use that as sort of a counter to 
approaches on sort of like the, the leaning in philosophy in terms of, you know, instead of attempting to make people conform to thinking about people as like needing to conform to operate inside of a specific system, I try to think about ways in which we can make, at least for me, make my, my world, my worldview, the sphere of sort of influence I have as someone who is in sort of engineering leadership, be one that is welcoming and incorporating and considerate of all, like a, a diversity of types of people and perspectives and understanding what they can bring to the table and thinking about, you know, the like, like systems and groups of people as sort of sort of an evolving set of systems and, and evolution. And like, that has sort of informed my worldview a lot about sort of meeting people where they are and sort of having a, a trauma informed, so to speak, um, you know, a, a trauma aware, trauma informed sort of perspective, like people are coming into this field from a variety of different you know, backgrounds. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna really make the best software that helps a maximum number of people, then we have to have the like a variety of types of people building it, interacting with it, and thinking about how those folks can fit in as a whole, and understanding their perspective and the the gifts that they are are coming to us with, to me has like been very, very informative. And like, you know, my philosophy on management has like been very much sort of informed by that, even though like it doesn't really take take management specifically into account. It's not like a, a book on management. It's not a book on technology at all. It's it's more based in the tenets of Afrofuturism, actually, um, than anything else. But it's actually it's it's very very like you know thinking about how you interact with people and how you move through the world and sort of like you know ways in which we can reduce doing harm and work as it work in a, a, a collective good is sort of like the, you know, something that I hope to sort of like, you know, bring to the table when it comes to, to uh, or I try to bring to the table when it comes to my thought on sort of like, like being an engineering leader. That's, that's great. I'm going to um, definitely include a link to that book in the show notes for everybody very curious. That sounds like uh, you know, really quite the uh, the review you have there, Evan. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, where where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software engineering online? Um, so you know, I'm I'm extremely online for for better or for worse. So um, at C J Wilburn, C J W I L B is in boy U R N on like pretty much every social medium that uh, that exists. You know, I I have I have occasionally like toyed with with blogging uh, off and on. So I, I usually will post links to some of the stuff that I've posted. You know, uh, via like a another social medium. If I have something up on my on my own personal blog, if I have some like a longer screed or set of opinions on something or other there. So you can just catch me at you know at CJ Wilburn on all the things. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Courtney. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop. Thanks. It's been it's been a joy. It's been, I've really enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. 